0: One cannot deny that the Americans shipped over to us material without which we could not have equipped our armies held in reserve or been able to continue the war. The words of Georgy Zhukov, Marshal of the Soviet Union and Minister of Defense. Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, your host in the Redbird studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin land, also called Ottawa. Thanks for joining me. This is episode 32, or episode three of season two. Kind of works out that way. It's the long promised look at the Lend-Lease program, and how it saved Russia's bacon, and everything else. Just a reminder before I go any further, by becoming a supporter on Patreon, you get access to an ad-free version of this podcast as well as member-only bonus episodes. The latest, a series profiling that greatest general of the USSR, Georgi Zhukov. To become a member on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa. The last main episode focused on the opening of the Battle of Stalingrad, which began in August 1942. As I said, that was the high point of the Axis' power. Almost all of Europe was under their sway, except for the UK, Ireland, and Portugal. Italy, with German muscle, held North Africa. Field Marshal Erwin Rommel and his Africa Corps threatened Europe. If they reached the Suez Canal, they could cut the UK off from its far eastern supplies and assets. The situation for the Soviet Union was even more dire. It seemed to be on its last legs. By summer 1942, Germany had taken Poland, all of the Baltic states, Belarus, Ukraine. They had surrounded Leningrad. Their armies were 60 miles from Moscow. And they had penetrated to the feet of the Caucasus Mountains, far to the south and east. The panzers reached the Volga River on August 23rd. This was not just a loss of territory, bad as that was. It meant an immense loss in the Soviet Union's ability to not only defend itself, but to feed its people, as well as weapons and ammunition. At the most basic level, soldiers need food. While the USSR famously has switched most of its factories to production of war material before 1941, and moved many of them beyond the reach of German shells and bombs, it still took months to get those factories going again. Tanks like the vaunted T-34 often rolled off the assembly lines right to the front lines without even bothering with paint. In December 1941, the USSR's factories produced only 600 aircraft of any kind. This was hardly a dent in the losses of the first days of Operation Barbarossa. And in the meantime, The Germans kept coming. The loss of territory also meant a tremendous loss in food production. In 1941 and 42, the USSR lost 41.9% of the total sown area, or area planted with food crops. They also lost 40% of their collective farms. The Soviet Union lost farm animals, tens of thousands of tractors, threshers, and other agricultural machines. 19.5 million men left the farms to serve in the army from 1941 to 1945, and that meant they weren't able to work on farms and produce food. Because of the scorched earth policy, even when they reconquered territory, they couldn't really get back to producing food anytime soon. My father-in-law, Maurice Burry, served in the Soviet Red Army in 1941, and he remembers the meager rations they had that fall, including soup that was basically water with fish heads floating in it. I kid you not. Then the United States came to the rescue. That's right, from 1941 to 1945, the icon of capitalism provided food, industrial materials, raw materials, ammunition, weapons, tanks, vehicles, and a buttload of other stuff. Millions of buttloads, actually, to the beacon of communism. All in the name of destroying fascism. That was the Lend-Lease Program. Lend-Lease. You've heard about it. But where did it come from? How did it start? After France fell in June of 1940, the British felt that their island stood alone in Europe against the Nazis. This wasn't really true, but that's the the feeling on the island at the time. So it turned to America for help. U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to support the U.K. and defeat Germany, but he faced opposition in Congress. You see, isolationism was a powerful force in the U.S. at the time. The Neutrality Acts of 1935, 1936, and 1937 intended to keep the U.S. out of foreign wars. These laws made it illegal for any American to sell or transport arms or other war materiel to any nation at war, whether it was a defender or an attacker. When the Neutrality Act lapsed in 1939, Roosevelt proposed a replacement bill that would give him more flexibility to deal with the aggressive actions of Germany, Italy, and Japan. Congress initially defeated it, but when Germany invaded Poland in September 1939, many members of Congress changed their position. So, on 2nd November 1939, the Pittman Act passed 243 to 181 in the House of Representatives, mostly supported by Democrats. It led to what was called the cash and carry program. Britain and France could buy and export arms, but pay for them in cash only, no credit or loans of any kind. And the goods could not be carried on American ships. So this did provide the allies the ability to buy arms from America. And it was also good for the US manufacturing economy. the 1940 presidential election, Republican candidate Wendell Wilkie accused Roosevelt of plotting secretly to embroil the USA in a foreign war. In response, Roosevelt promised he would, quote, not send American boys into any foreign wars, end quote. Kind of put himself in a difficult position. Fortunately, Roosevelt won re-election. Now, I'm just going to back up a little bit back into the time and the context of the Neutrality Act. Roosevelt pushed through a rearmament program. In 1938, the U.S. Army had only nine divisions in total 200,000 men, one-tenth the number in Germany's army. Roosevelt then appointed General George Marshall as Chief of Staff. He energetically expanded the army. By the end of the war in 1945, it was eight million strong and that did not include other branches of the military. For instance, the plan in 1938 called for another 15,000 aircraft for the Army Air Force each year. The Two Ocean Navy Act of July 1940 led to the rapid growth of the U.S. Navy. In 1940, the Department of the Navy asked Congress for funding to increase its total naval tonnage by 11%, as well as expand naval air capacity. But when Germany defeated France in the six-week campaign, the Navy asked for an additional $4 billion from Congress to increase the fleet by not 11%, but 70%. This would add 257 ships. In less than an hour, Congress unanimously approved not $4 billion, but $8.55 billion. So more than twice the amount. This would enable the Navy to begin building eight aircraft carriers, seven battleships, 27 cruisers, 115 destroyers, 43 submarines, and 15,000 naval aircraft. It also called for converting 100,000 tons of auxiliary ships and money for power, escort, and other vessels, munitions, supplies, and $35 million to expand naval facilities like harbors. No one spends money like Americans. Soon after Roosevelt's re-election, on 8th December 1940, Churchill sent him a special letter asking for 3 million tons of merchant shipping to bring in essential supplies, along with U.S. Navy warships to protect those convoys against U-boats. At this point, the U-boats had already sunk 2 million gross tons of British shipping. Churchill asked Roosevelt, and by extension, the United States, to take, quote, a decisive act of constructive non-belligerency, end quote, to to extend Britain's ability to hold out against the Axis. In addition to the US Navy protection for supply convoys, Churchill also asked for 2,000 aircraft per month, every month. How would Britain pay for all this? Well, they couldn't. According to a number of sources, by this time, Britain's gold suppliers were getting depleted because they had been paying for, in cash for American ammunition, arms, and, and other material. Now, that bit about Britain running out of money and its gold reserves being drained by paying in cash for U.S. material comes from a book titled Britain and the United States by H.C. Allen, published in 1955. But even a cursory look today at Britain's wealth shows that between 1935 and 1940, encompassing that period when Britain was paying cash for its imports, the empire's gold reserves fell 5%, or 74.34 tons, to 1,390.22 metric tons. So 5% is significant, but it's not like they had nothing left. And by the end of the war in 1945, Britain's gold reserves had recovered and more to 1,777.94 metric tons, an increase of almost 70% compared to the height of the Roaring Twenties. Moreover, an article published in May 2023 by Max Gethings on the Military History Now website pointed out that the island of Britain was far from alone in 1940. It had a huge, world-spanning empire of half a billion subjects to call on. And call it did. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, India, South Africa, Rhodesia, Newfoundland, Burma, Malaya, New Guinea, Sudan, virtually every one of those many colonies, dominions, and possessions, all sent something, men, arms, supplies, food, to various theaters of operation around the world more than half of the military personnel who served in the British Empire and Commonwealth units came from beyond the British Isles. But anyway, we're getting beyond the scope of this podcast. It's true that in the spring of 1940, Great Britain faced a dire threat from being cut off from the supplies it depended on. 34% of its imports had come from continental Europe before the war the fall of France, ended the source of most of Britain's bacon, eggs, and butter. And even though the empire could and did supply food and essential materials, getting those materials to the island was becoming almost impossible. Remember the loss of millions of tons of shipping up to 1940? The Battle of the Atlantic destroyed and threatened the very survival of Britain. Hence, Churchill's letter to Roosevelt in December 1940 asking for merchant ships to carry the supplies it needed, warships to protect them, and airplanes. The letter ended, quote, I'm not going to try to do my Churchill impression, so don't worry. Quote, last of all, I come to the question of finance, end quote. By this time, Britain's orders for various materials from the U.S., quote, many times exceeded the total exchange resources remaining at the disposal of Great Britain, said Churchill. In other words, we need this stuff, but we can't pay for it. Can you send it anyway, for free? In his comprehensive volume, The Second World War, author Antony Beaver describes it this way, quote, never has such an important or dignified begging letter been written it was almost exactly a year from the day when the United States would find itself at war. End quote. Following Churchill's letter, Roosevelt made his famous Arsenal Democracy radio broadcast on 29th December 1940. Remember, it's still a year before the USA's official entry into the war following the raid on Pearl Harbor. Roosevelt framed his speech as, quote, a talk on national security. He described the threat posed by the access not only to Europe and Asia, but to America. Quote, some of us like to believe that even if Britain falls, we are still safe because of the broad expanse of the Atlantic and of the Pacific, end quote. But, he pointed out, those oceans were no longer wide enough to insulate the Americas, not with planes that could cross them. He described the threat of Nazism, quoting Hitler himself, who said, quote, there are two worlds that stand opposed to each other. With this world, we cannot ever reconcile ourselves. I can beat any other power in the world, End quote. Those were Hitler's words. Roosevelt went on to say this, quote, if Great Britain goes down, the Axis powers will control the continents of Europe, Asia, Africa Australasia and the high seas and they will be in a position to bring enormous military and naval resources against this hemisphere It is no exaggeration to say that all of us in the Americas would be living at the point of a gun end quote Roosevelt described the new initiatives to build up the American defenses and then said quote "We must be the great arsenal of democracy end quote: This involved, or would involve, using America's planes, ships, guns, and shells to defend the American Hemisphere. That kind of assumes a lot, but anyway. It also meant continuing to support Britain and using all that material not only within the Western Hemisphere, but wherever in the world it was needed according to the U.S.'s overall military necessities. I've put a link to the audio recording of the speech on the show notes and in the webpage, as well as a link to the entire text of the speech. Roosevelt wanted to help Britain defeat Hitler, but he was still facing a lot of opposition from isolationist members of Congress. There was the America First Committee, a strident isolationist organization that included Republicans and Democrats as well as noted anti-Semites like Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh, there were also outright American fascists. Still, most Americans were in favour of giving aid to Britain, especially after the fall of France, and after seeing news photos of the effects of the Blitz on British cities. So, Roosevelt hit on the idea of land lease Under the Lend-Lease Act, The U.S. would supply food, oil, minerals, ammunition, and other material necessary for waging war to the Allies, free of charge, until the supplies could be returned or were destroyed. Most of the equipment donated would be destroyed. However, after the end of the war, some ships were returned. Roosevelt likened the idea to someone whose house was on fire asking his neighbor for the use of his garden hose. Roosevelt said he wouldn't ask his neighbor to buy his hose. He'd lend it and expect it back when the fire was extinguished. In response, Republican Senator Robert Taft said, quote, Lending war equipment is a good deal like lending chewing gum. You certainly don't want the same gum back. Chewing gum aside, Congress passed the Lend-Lease Act by 8 March 1941. Roosevelt signed it into law on the 11th. It began with lending $1 billion worth of aid to Britain. This policy was then extended to China in April and in October to the USSR, three months into the German invasion. The terms allowed British warships to be repaired at American ports. RAF pilots began training at US Army Air Force bases and the US Navy began escorting British convoys as far as Iceland, where the Royal Navy could take over. In the British House of Commons, Churchill called it, quote, the most unsorted act in the history of any nation, end quote. But it wasn't completely altruistic. The Americans attached conditions to their charity. First, the U.S. Congress demanded a full audit of British assets, and a U.S. warship transferred British gold stockpiles from South Africa for safekeeping in the U.S. The U.S. government bought British-owned companies like Shell and Lever at discount prices and resold them at great profit. The U.S. got a number of British Virgin Islands in return for 50 naval destroyers. But the first deliveries of Lend-Lease were disappointing. Those destroyers were World War I vintage and needed extensive refitting before they could be used. Still... Total lend-lease aid from the U.S. came to $50.1 billion by the end of the war. In 2023 finances, that would be $850.8 billion. It amounted to 17%, nearly a fifth then, of the United States' total war expenditures up to 1945. Britain got most of this, $31.4 billion, nearly 65%. The USSR got 22.7%, which was about $10 billion worth. France got 6%, $3.2 billion. China, 3.3%, $1.6 billion. Smatterings of amounts went to 28 other countries like Norway, Mexico, Iceland, Yugoslavia, Poland, Iran, Costa Rica, and more. Now let's focus on the subject of this podcast, the USSR. But before we do that, we'll take a short break. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian man, Maurice Bury, drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time to be thrown between the jaws of the USSR and Nazi Germany at the launch of the greatest land invasion in history, the monstrous war called Operation Barbarossa. It comes in three volumes, Army of War and Souls," "Under the Nazi Heel," and "Walking Out of War." The Eastern Front trilogy is the story of the largest and deadliest side of the Second World War, seen through the eyes of a man who was there from the earliest days in 1941, through Germany's grinding occupation of Ukraine, and finally to the savage end of the war in Berlin. You can find three individual volumes as ebooks exclusively on Amazon or purchase a three-volume complete paperback on any online book retailer or at your local bookstore. To m- learn more about the Eastern Front trilogy, visit scottburyauthor.com.
1: Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe? by Ukrainian princesses, or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army. Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern front of the Second World War.
0: Thanks for coming back to this episode on the Lend Lease to the USSR. In September 1941, the Great Britain's Minister of Aircraft Production, Canadian-born Max Aiken, better known as Lord Beaverbrook and publisher of Scandal Sheets, and Roosevelt's advisor Avril Harriman visited Moscow to discuss the Soviet Union's military needs. Stalin told them, quote, the country that could produce the most engines would ultimately be the victor prophetic words. By the way, Stalin also suggested that British troops should come and help defend Ukraine. By this point, though, that was moot. Guderian's panzers were already hitting Tula, 180 kilometers south of Moscow. Lend-lease deliveries to the USSR took a while to get going, which apparently exasperated Roosevelt, but they were critical to the Soviet Union's survival, let alone its eventual victory. Oops, spoiler alert. Lend-lease aid included weapons and industrial goods like high-quality steel. American guns, artillery, aircraft, and overall food kept the USSR from starving to death. My father-in-law, Maurice Burry, who I mentioned, served in the Red Army during the war. He had especially fond memories of American food when it started to arrive. A stark contrast to the meagre rations the Red Army could provide in the autumn of 1941. Shipments included rails for railroads, even whole locomotives. The USSR had to build special cranes to unload locomotives from the ships at Murmansk. But it was non-armored vehicles that made the biggest difference, especially in the latter half of the war. American Jeeps or General Purpose Vehicles, and trucks from Dodge and Studebaker. Here's a list of some of the supplies that came from the United States to the USSR. 18,200 aircraft, about 30% of all Soviet warplanes. 7,000 U.S.-built Sherman and Lee tanks. Over 400,000 trucks and Jeeps. 1,911 steam locomotives, 66 diesel locomotives, 9,920 flat cars, 1,000 dump cars, and 155 other rail wagons. 53% of the USSR's total domestic production of ammunition. 53% more than half. Whole factories, such as a tire plant taken from Ford's River Rouge plant, 2.7 million tons of oil and petroleum products, including 58% of all the USSR's aviation fuel, and 1.75 million tons of food. The UK also delivered some lentil's aid to the USSR, but at first these got nowhere near Churchill's extravagant promises. Britain just didn't have much to spare, or so it claimed. And some was just unsuited to the environment, such as British coats and boots. The first British shipment, though, arrived in Murmansk in September 1941, so ahead of the Americans. And this included 40 Hawker Hurricane fighter planes, with 550 pilots and mechanics who would train their Soviet counterparts. Soviet leaders were disappointed, though, that they weren't Spitfires. Later shipments would include the aging Matilda, Valentine, and Tetrarch tanks. This amounted to 40% of the USSR's complement of medium and heavy tank numbers by late 1941. That proportion would change as time went on and the Russian uh, production capacity increased. By the end of the war, British shipments to the Soviet Union included 3,000 Hawker Hurricane fighters, 4,000 other aircraft, 27 naval ships, 5,218 tanks, including 1,380 Vickers-Valentine tanks from Canada, 5,000 anti-tank guns, 4,020 ambulances and trucks, 1.55 billion pounds worth of aircraft engines, 1,474 radar sets, and 4,338 radio sets as well as 120 million pounds worth of food and other raw materials. Land lease to the USSR went by three routes, Arctic convoys to Murmansk and Arkhangelsk, the Persian corridor across Iran over the Caspian Sea and up the Volga River, and via the Pacific route, to Vladivostok in the Russian Far East. So let's look at these in turn. First, the Arctic convoys. From August 1941 to May 1945, some 1,400 merchant ships delivered much-needed supplies to the USSR over the Arctic convoy route, under the Anglo-Soviet agreement and the Lend-Lease program. Ships of the Royal Navy, Royal Canadian Navy, and the US Navy escorted them to protect them from German U-boat and air attack. The Arctic route was the most difficult because of the climate and the nature of the sea. Also, this route had to go past German-occupied Norway and thus was vulnerable to attack. Moreover, the port of Arkhangelsk was icebound between November and May. The first Arctic convoy was Operation Dervish. Six merchant ships and an oil tanker sailed from Liverpool on 12 August 1941 to Scapa Flow in the Orkney Islands north of Scotland, then to Fjalfjord on the east side of Iceland, and the last leg to Arkhangelsk in the White Sea. That may sound, as I speak, like a circuitous route to go from Scotland west to Iceland, but if you look at it on a globe rather than a flat map, you can see that it's not as far as it seems, and also it does the important thing of avoiding the Germans. This convoy carried raw materials, including wool, rubber, and tin, plus those 24 Hawker Hurricane fighter planes in crates. 14 warships in relays protected the convoy. These included destroyers, anti-submarine trawlers, minesweepers, and an anti-aircraft destroyer. For part of the journey, they were supported by a relay of cruisers and an aircraft carrier with distant cover force airplanes. The convoy made the trip without incident, without attack from Germany, suffered no casualties. So the Allies began a series of twice-monthly convoys. Starting in September 1941, they would leave from Iceland, go north of Yon Mayan Island, which is way to the north and actually seems kind of close to Greenland, then go east, passing north of Norway to Murmansk or Archangel. As the year waned and the ice came further south, the route shifted south too, but this brought them closer to those German bases for submarines and airplanes in northern Norway. From February 1942, the starting point shifted to Loch Hue in northern Scotland. Then, depending on the time of year and ice conditions to Iceland or just straight north of Jan Mayen Island, or sometimes just around the northwest coast of Norway. You can see the routes in the map that I posted on the webpage for this episode. There were two long breaks in the shipments, July to September 1942, following the huge losses to convoy PQ-17. More on that in a minute and in November 1942, because the ships were being used to get ready for Operation Torch, the Anglo-American invasion of North Africa. The risks to the convoys following the Arctic route included close German air, submarine, and surface naval forces, including the much feared German battleship Tirpitz. Of course, the weather, fog, and strong currents made the trip difficult even in peacetime, and drift ice was always a danger. The Germans quickly realized, though, that they faced danger from these convoys that were equipping their enemy, and they sent attacks by air and submarine. In July 1942, that convoy I mentioned, PQ-17, suffered the worst losses of any convoy in the war attacked by air and submarine. Only 11 of 35 merchant ships made it to port. Through the war, the Allies sent nearly 4 million tons of goods by this Arctic route. 7% was lost, 93% made it. This accounted for 23%, so almost a quarter of the total aid to the USSR during the war. The Persian Corridor was the longest route for landly supplies and the only all-weather route. It was the longest because convoys started in the UK or US and sailed around Africa, south of the Cape of Good Hope, then over the Indian Ocean to the Persian Gulf. After 1943, when the Allies had captured Tunisia, Sicily, and southern Italy, basically clearing the Axis out of the Mediterranean, cargoes could go through that sea, then the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea, and around the Arabian Peninsula to the Persian Gulf. Two main ports in Iran were used. Boucher and Bandar-Shapur, now called Bandar Imam Khomeini, if you want to find it on Google Maps. The route also used two ports in Iraq, Basra and Qasr. Um From those ports, the route went by rail through Tehran, then to ports on the Caspian Sea, principally Nausha. Ships then carried the supplies across the Caspian to the Volga River and then up the river past Stalingrad, hence the fierce German attempt to take the city, and into the USSR's industrial heartland. How much? What was the total shipment? Well, The statistics seem to conflict. Some sources claim the Persian route accounted for 8 million tons, uh, 45% of the total U.S. lend-lease aid to the USSR. Others put this proportion at 27%, which I think is closer to the actual figure. The Pacific route was the safest path for Lend-Lease Supplies to the USSR, but it couldn't be used for everything. I'll get to that. But it did account for the greatest proportion of Lend-Lease Supplies. Goods started on the West Coast USA ports, principally Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and Columbia River ports. The ships cross the Pacific Ocean, following a great circle path, the shortest distance over a globe, then through the Perouse Strait, which separates the Soviet island of Sakhalin from the northernmost Japanese island of Hokkaido, then across the Sea of Okhotsk to Vladivostok. When that strait froze in the winter, the ships would go south of Japan, through the Korean Strait, and north to Vladivostok. In the summer, they could also go north of Sakhalin Island through the narrow Tartary Strait if their draft was shallow enough. Now this may seem strange, these supplies for the Allies going so close to Japan. And when hostilities broke out between the US and Japan in December 1941, the Allies knew they had to use exclusively Soviet ships. You see, the USSR and Japan had signed a non-aggression agreement in 1939, following the Battle of Kalkan and Gaul. Soviet ships then were, you know, seen as okay. The Japanese usually let them go, even then, though the ships, a lot of the ships were actually built in the United States and then gifted as part of the land lease program to the USSR. But this meant that this route had to carry non-war materials such as food and some raw materials, trucks, other vehicles, railway cars, and so on. Even though the Japanese Navy usually let the Soviet ships go through, some boats were sunk by submarines. And some were sunk by American submarines that did not recognize the ships as Soviet. Even when they did reach Vladivostok, the ships or the supplies had to be transported to the Eastern Front and the industrial areas by rail. 8,000 kilometers or 5,000 miles along the Trans-Siberian Railway. This trip took 18 to 20 days. And there was only so much that could be carried at one time because the Soviet Union had one rail line and only so many grail cars. In total, the Pacific route accounted for 45 to 50% of the total Lend-Lease supplies to the USSR. So what can we say in conclusion? Lend-Lease was an incredible undertaking. 17 million tons of weapons, food, clothing, vehicles, industrial equipment, and other things you'd never dream of, transported literally around the world through some of the most remote and difficult to reach areas to the most intensive war zone in history. The routes crossed four oceans, the Atlantic, Pacific, Arctic, and Indian. They went around the Cape of Good Hope, and then over the greatest land mass on earth. From September 1941 to May 1945, the Lend-Lease program kept the Soviet Union alive. Without it, it's impossible to say what the USSR's fate would have been. Food, ammunition, tanks, guns, and vehicles made the difference. 17 million tons of supplies, thousands of tanks and warplanes. Let's not forget Maurice Burry's favorite Lend-Lease provision spam he said the american canned ham was very tasty for an army accustomed to fish head soup it was a bit of salty heaven there's no contesting that the soviet union the men and women of the red army did the heavy lifting in the second world war 20 million people of the ussr perished in that war and it was the red army that took berlin in april in april 1945 but without land aid, well, the food and ammunition and vehicles and tanks and planes and everything else, that would not have happened. Not in 1945 any, anyway. And not without millions more losses on the Western fronts. I'll conclude by quoting one Nikita Khrushchev head political commissar of Ukraine in 1942, and later somewhat more powerful in the post-war USSR, as first secretary. Stalin stated bluntly that if the United States had not helped us, we would not have won the war. If we had had to fight Nazi Germany one-on-one, we could not have stood up against Germany's pressure, and we would have lost the war. No one ever discussed the subject officially, And I don't think Stalin left any written evidence of his opinion, but I will state here that several times in conversations with me, he noted that these were the actual circumstances. He never made a special point of holding a conversation on the subject, but when we were engaged in some kind of relaxed conversation, going over international questions of the past and present, and when we would return to the subject of the path we had traveled during the war, that is what he said. When I listened to his remarks, I was fully in agreement with him, and today I am even more so." End quote. Those were words from his autobiography. So that's it. Lend-lease from the United States, and also supplies from Canada and other nations. What enabled the USSR to survive this terrible war? And I think that's a good place to end. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. You can find links and resources and maps and other stuff on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to this episode and all the other episodes through my own website, writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner thank you to all of you who have supported the podcast through patreon until all ukrainian refugees can return home safely your financial support goes to charities that help ukrainian refugees after that it's going to go into making this show even better if you like this episode consider following beyond barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app and if you could Take a few seconds and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. It really helps spread the word to others who are interested in this subject. If you find it made any errors, or if you have a question, comment, or just something to say about the Eastern Front, please reach out. My email is contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca, or you can also reach me through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.